All right, we'll uh, we'll pray, and then if, if you have any uh, questions or comments from this morning, we can take a minute for that, and then we'll look at the uh, the remainder of the chapter here, chapter 19, Revelation 19. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again today for uh, giving this, giving us this day to set aside for corporate worship. Thank you for all of the uh, study and the fellowship. Lord, we pray and ask for your blessing tonight as we open your word before us again and consider this passage. Lord, please uh, grant to us the, the confidence, the assurance, the encouragement that you intend for us to get from it, uh, knowing that you are Lord, that you are King of kings, Lord of lords, and that you're working all things together for good to those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. Lord, may you be honored in all that we do here, uh, out here in the auditorium and in the back with the kids. Lord, bless, we pray, and let your name be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we read this next section, any, any, uh, any questions or comments on this morning message? Clear as mud. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll read the the remainder of the uh, chapter here. All right. Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 17. Chapter 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather... For the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Not a very pretty picture, is it? We just we just had a living illustration of that on the way up here. Somebody had uh, thrown a carcass out on the side of the road, uh, which this is not deer season, so I'm not sure what that was about. But uh, of course, the uh, the buzzards, whatever it was, the buzzards liked it. So that's the picture here, and and uh, and what he calls, and this is what we're talking about tonight: the Great Supper. Of God, the great supper of God. Now, this morning, we were talking about Jesus as the the uh, the warrior king, uh, and in the verses previous to this, which we talked about this morning. In fact, let me mention a couple things here, just kind of kind of set the context. Uh, you go back earlier in the chapter. Uh, this is what we covered last week. And for example, you have these all these hallelujahs, all these doxologies, you know, praises to God. Um, verse 1, hallelujah, 
salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. So, God is being praised for bringing judgment on the world. Look again in the the latter part of uh, verse 3. Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That is, again, it's talking about the great prostitute slash city. Remember chapter 17, it was, uh, the imagery was a great prostitute. In chapter 18, the imagery was Babylon, the great city. Uh, but talking about the same thing. Uh, and God bringing judgment. Of course, the, the, the prostitute and, and the, uh, Babylon, the great city, uh, in some sense represent uh, the world, the world system, everything that stands opposed to God. And when we were talking about the great prostitute, I said that probably to be a little more specifically, there may be the idea there of, uh, of idolatry. In other words, just anything being worshipped in place of God. So God brings judgment on, on the world, the whole world system, everything and everybody that stands in opposition to God. And that's what He's being praised for here because... They say in verse 2, His judgments are true and just. So you got the hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Hallelujah in verse 1, in verse 3, and then you see it again in verse 4. Um, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. And then you see it again in verse 6. 6. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord again. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. I'll come back to that in a minute. But you got all these, these various doxologies, which uh, praise is what that is. Praise to God for what? Well, it's looking back on all of the, the visions that we have already covered, and you know, God bringing um, judgment on the world and showing Himself to be uh, the the uh, the ruler, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and then looking forward to what we talked about this morning, where you you get this uh, same thing again in in different imagery, except here it's it's coming right up to the end, the second return of Christ where He comes and brings final judgment. So we got Christ, in, in verses 11 through 15, you've got Christ, Jesus, um, presented as a rider on a white horse. And what's He doing? He's coming to judge and make war. So again, those, dox, those doxologies early in the chapter um, have to do with this as well. In other words, they're praising God for um, two things. Judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. Because when Christ conquers, that's what He's doing, right? He's, he's judging the world. He's judging sin. And at the same time, He's bringing salvation to His people. Alright? So, um, so, that's why He's being praised. Praise the Lord. Alright, now, I just read... Let me go back again to verse 7. I just read verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory... For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. 
What is the marriage supper of the Lamb? What do you, what do you picture? It's, a, it's the time at, at the consummation, right, where um, we are joined to Christ to be with Him forever. And, you know, uh, uh, a supper, um, to, to sit at table with somebody um, in the ancient world, and it's, it's kind of this way today, we haven't totally lost this, but in the ancient world, it, it was uh, it represented a certain intimacy. In other words, I mean, if you didn't if you didn't like somebody or didn't have a good relationship with them, you probably weren't inviting them over to uh, to eat, right? Or or you know, going out to uh, Ryan's or whatever it was they did in those days. Um, but if you liked somebody and you had a good close relationship with them, then they were probably um, regular at your table, or vice versa, vice versa. And like I say, we haven't totally lost that, because a lot of times it, it's stronger in some cultures than in others, not real strong in our culture, but, but we haven't totally lost it. So a lot of times what people do, um, in order to, to uh, uh, establish a closer relationship with somebody, invite them over to eat, right? Or go out to eat to, to a restaurant together. Um, and have somebody else serve you so that you can sit there and talk and and uh, and get to know each other. Um, so so that's the that's I think why the imagery of a supper is used here. That's part of it because it denotes a certain intimacy. So when we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, we think about Christ and the church um, coming together to be together for eternity. And, and that intimacy is communicated with the imagery of a supper. Let me, let me give you another example of that before I move on to another aspect. In, in Matthew 26, you've got uh, Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper. And uh, you look, look down in... In fact, I'm going to read from here. I'm not going to John, but I'm going to mention John. In John, it's like chapters 13 through 18. That's the Last Supper. That's where they're, they're, they're seated at table with Jesus. Very intimate. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a special time between Jesus and His disciples because He's about to leave them and He's giving them instruction. Well, part of that was the Last Supper, which, which we... Uh, we commemorate, you know, once a month when we t- we we use the uh, bread and and grape juice uh, to represent um, the body and blood of Christ. It's what they're doing here. Verse 26, Matthew 26, 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, "Take, eat. This is my body." And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is, his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what he's doing here is, is uh, establishing his covenant with his people, and he's, and he's doing that over a meal in, in the form of a meal that we call the Lord's Supper. Verse 29, and here's where I was getting to. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And I I think what he's talking about there is, you know, at at the consummation, at the last day, 
um, after the final judgment, when we are together with Him in the kingdom, we will once again, or for the disciples it will be once again, but we will, we will sit down with Him at table and have that kind of intimate relationship with Him that they are having here, that kind of intimate discourse with Him, seated at table eating and drinking. That's the picture. So Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, and he's talking about um, in, the, in the eternal state at the last day. So that's, the, I, that's, that's another way, I think, of talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. But there, there, I would say there are two aspects of it here, and that's the one that we always get. That's the one that we always focus on. And for good reason, because that's <laughs> it's exciting to think about. That there's, there's coming a day when all of this mess is behind us. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease, right? No more death. No more, no more sin at all so that, so that even our relationship with God is not hindered by our sin. Everything is set right. And the marriage supper of the Lamb, you know, that's, that's, that's a way of portraying it. So, so we look forward to that kind of intimacy. There's another aspect of it, I think, here that um, gets neglected. And that's the judgment aspect. And again, we, we've been seeing this all the way through, right? The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. What happens on the day of the Lord? Well, primarily two things. Judgment and salvation. Or you could say judgment and reward. Judgment and reward. Final judgment on everything and everybody that stands opposed to Christ. And fullness of reward for everybody that is in Christ. Everybody that believes on Christ. So um, when you think about the, the day of the Lord, that, that's, that's what it encompasses. Judgment and reward. Judgment and reward. Okay. So, verse 7 he says, let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. So the marriage of the Lamb, that is Jesus, and His marriage with the church has come. And we are to forever be with Him. So He says, rejoice, rejoice, exult, give Him Glory, right? But then you get over to where we started reading earlier. You get over into to, uh, verse 17. And here he is talking about Jesus returning in judgment. And he says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Well, when we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, we don't think about um, buzzards gorging themselves on carcasses, do we? As I said, what we, what we think about is sitting down at table with Christ. And that's, that's, that's good and that's right because that's, that's the way it will be for Christians. The consummation um, for us means reward. But for the rest of the world, for anybody that is outside of Christ, the consummation means judgment. And that is what's being described in verses um, 11 through 21 here. So Jesus returns. And why does, uh, what, is, what does He come doing? Verse 
verse 11. Well, it says he's faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So he's pictured here as a rider on a white horse, coming with a sword, wielding a sword, the sword that proceeds from his mouth. Remember, this is still... um, Apocalyptic, what we're dealing with here. So we're, we're still getting image, images. And so you might be thinking, well, does this mean that Jesus is going to literally come riding on a horse and that we're all going to be with him riding on white horses? Probably not. Okay? <laughs> I mean, be fine if we are. I mean, I like horses. That, that, that sounds awesome. But, but probably not. This is just imagery to, to convey um, his coming in victory with his people. So he's pictured as a warrior. Riding a horse, wielding a sword. The sword is the Word. In fact, he himself, in verse 13, is called the Word of God. And verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. See, he's coming in judgment, coming to make war. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So, um, that's a picture that would have been uh, familiar to the, the Jews in ancient Israel. Probably nobody in this room has ever tread um, grapes. I don't know. Has anybody ever done that? Wesley, you ever done that in any of your... No? I... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. Unfortunately, I, I was already thinking that. Uh, unfortunately, when you, when you talk about treading grapes, um, the image that comes to my mind is Lucille Ball, okay? Uh, and that just kind of distorts the whole thing here, but... Um... <laughs> Huh? Just now, I just read uh, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, for he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So they would get in the vat, you know, and, and stomp the grapes, stomp the grapes and, and the, to get the juice out. And, of course, the juice would, would be flowing. And so he uses that picture here to, to talk about him making war. In other words, he's, he's coming back, stomping the enemy, and the blood is flowing. In fact, if you remember a few um, chapters back, um, it was described as being um, to the, as deep as the horse's bridles, right, throughout the land, the blood. And here, it, he's, he's talked about his, his garments are blood-stained because... Because he's defeating the enemy. He's wiping out the enemy. That's the picture here. He's coming in judgment. And then in verse 17, it's called the Great Supper. And there's a call that goes out to the buzzards, right? To the birds of the air. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. So this, this is the great supper of God. It's not sitting down at table in an intimate setting, like to have conversation. It's war. It's all-out war. In fact, it's the final war between God and the world. So the birds are called, come, come, verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I, I think the emphasis there um, is, is to point out that it's, it's 
that nobody's exempt from this. In other words, if, except those who are in Christ. But if you're outside of Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a king or a pauper, right? It doesn't matter if you're a, a, a billionaire or you're just barely getting by. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free, you know, employer, employee, or whatever the case is. Um, if you're not in Christ, then you are facing judgment. And then verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So this is, again, the same struggle, again, portrayed in, in different imagery. And it's all coming from the um, same idea that we had in Psalm 2 we read this morning. Why do the heathen rage? Right? The kings of the earth stand up against the Lord and against His Christ. Well, that's what's happening here. The whole world, that is everybody outside of Christ, the whole world is standing opposed to Him to make war with Him, including the beast and the false prophet here that we've talked about previously. And the beast was captured, verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So just like the prostitute in chapter 17, Babylon in chapter 18, um, what is it, chapter 12, I think, with the dragon that was after the, uh, the woman who had born the child, you know, the same struggle. They're all defeated. They all represent the same thing, essentially. Uh, the world, everything that stands opposed to Christ. And they are conquered. They are defeated. They are thrown into the lake of fire. Notice about the false prophet, it says... Um, he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Now, that's, that's the issue again, and it's, it's a way of, of communicating those who are outside of Christ. In other words, you either, you either worship Christ, you either worship the true God, the Almighty as he's described here, you either worship the, the Almighty through faith in Jesus Christ, that is, you follow, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, or the other option is you're a worshipper of the beast. In other words, you're in love with this world and the things of this world. And that's what your heart is set on. You've been deceived, as it were, by the false prophet into worshiping the beast and going after him. Well, where is um, the beast and the false prophet headed? What is there, where, where are they going to wind up? Where is this world going to wind up? He says they were cast into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And by the way, I should point out too, there, it, such is the victory of Christ here. I mean, he, he wins with a word, the sword that comes out of his mouth. Um, here he is coming, riding on a white horse with all of his armies, you know, all of the saints. So there, there's everything, and the, and the beast and the false prophet, and all the nations are gathering against him to make war. He's coming to make war. They're coming to make war. But there's, never, but there's no account of war here. I mean, not in the sense of like a battle that, that strings out, takes time. 
Oh no, when, 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 when Christ comes to conquer, um, he has no problem. It might be like a, a, little, a little reflection, a little picture of that. I, re, I remember in uh, 1991 when uh, we in, invaded, uh, actually Saddam Hussein's armies had invaded uh, Kuwait, and we massed a over a half million man army um, to push them back out of Kuwait and into back into Iraq, and it was a scary thing um, because Saddam Hussein had the fourth largest army in the world at that time. Fourth army—that's I mean, not bad. Think of all the nations, fourth largest army. So everybody's thinking, you know, I mean, this could be uh, this could be long and drawn out. That that part of it, uh, you know, I know you came, it came back to us later, and, and it's still there's still problems there. But the first Gulf War um, lasted less than 100 hours. When when our coalition wasn't just Americans, but when our coalition moved in to push them out, um, it was relatively easy. And the, the fourth largest army in the world in less than 100 hours um, was essentially decimated. Um, it won't even be that hard when Jesus comes back to take on the beast and the false prophet and all of the nations who stand against him. Um, so, so you don't read an account here of a long, drawn-out battle because he comes back with a quick and decisive victory. Okay. So these two, the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest, all of the followers of the beast, uh, and so forth, 21, verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So the picture there is that he comes back and just wipes them out, and then the buzzards are feeding on their carcasses. That's, that's the picture of a decisive victory. And Jesus emerges victorious. Now, one other thing I want to say before I quit, and then if you've got comments and questions, we, we can do that. Um, it's interesting to me, several things, and I pointed some of this out this morning, but look, look again at... Um, uh, let's see, what verse was that? Okay, verse 21, the last one I read. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. So, in other words, from the mouth of Jesus. The rest, that were, the rest were slain from the sword. So, this is not a, a sword that he's carrying in a sheath on his side or that he's, that he's wielding in his arm. Again, this is imagery, right? This is, this is, this is a, um, apocalyptic um, the genre, so, so it uses imagery and pictures you know, to convey messages. So, he, so it's not to be taken as a literal sword. It's a sword coming from his mouth. In other words, his word. In fact, as we, we saw, Jesus himself is called the Word of God. And what he communicates is the Word of God. As I said this morning, he perfectly expresses God. He perfectly communicates 
God. And they are slain by this. Hebrews, writer of Hebrews says, the word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And Jesus himself said that um, everybody would be judged by his word. So, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing that up to, to, to make this point again. That I, what we're getting into here is the consummation. In other words, the final, the second return of, uh, 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 the second coming, I should say, the second uh, coming of Jesus at the end when he brings final judgment and final blessing. But, but I think, just as is typical with apocalyptic literature, um, some of it, is, it, 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 it is, is a uh, kind of overlaps, you know, in the ages. So in other words, like I said this morning, when was the decisive, when is the decisive victory? Well, it happened at Calvary. That's not something that's future, even in, in time and space. That, that took place 2,000 years ago. Jesus won while on the cross. He came to judge the world and to save sinners. He judged sin on the cross. It was judged in Him. He, he died as a sinner, although He Himself was not a sinner, because He took our sins, the sins of all who believe, He took upon Himself, and while He was hanging on the cross, He bore the wrath of God in our place. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, while He was on the cross, He bore the wrath of God for you, so that you don't ever have to endure God's wrath. That's good news. In doing that, He conquered sin and death. And that was made fully manifest on the third day when He rose from the dead. The grave couldn't hold Him, right? Again, just, just as we read this morning in Psalm 2. Um, today, um, I, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's referring to the resurrection. I think it's Acts 13 where Paul uh, quotes that and points out that that's talking about the, the resurrection of Christ. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. And in Romans 5, Paul says, He was declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection from the dead. So in the resurrection, his, his victory over sin and death is, is manifest. It's made known. The fact that he... Um, I'll say it this way. The fact that he rose again proved that he did exactly what he set out to do. It proved that he was exactly who he said he was. So the decisive victory happened on the cross. And the judgment, just like we're reading here, the judgment with the sword of his mouth, that's even happening now. And sometimes... People are, are, are uh, being crushed by Him, and sometimes they are falling on Him and being crushed. There's a difference. And that's happening through the Word. Through the Word. That is, either the Word humbles you and crushes you, in a sense, you know, softens your heart and you repent and submit to Christ, or the Word is your judge. And the wrath of God remains on you. So these things are happening now in one sense, because the victory has already been won. And then the full manifestation of it is 
is all to be realized when Jesus returns. Because even though Jesus has conquered sin now, already done, He did that on the cross, as long as we remain in this world, there is still sin. And even in the lives of believers, we have to deal with sin every day in our own lives. When Jesus returns, all that will change. Then it will be the, f- the full and final judgment on the world and the full and complete blessing for God's people. No more sin. So for Christians, it will mean sitting at table, as it were, with Christ eternally, <laughs> feeding at the table of the King of kings and Lord of lords. For the world, it will mean judgment, devastation, the great supper of God where the buzzards come and gorge on the flesh of those who raged against the Lord and against His Christ. Okay. Any, um, any comments or questions on, on any of that? All right. Well, let's pray and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, again, thank You for Your Word. And Lord, thank You for salvation through Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that by Your grace, um, we do know You and know Your presence and know Your goodness. And Lord, we ask that You empower us to be faithful to tell others, uh, to get the Word out to those who need to hear for their salvation and for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.